Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. Updates, analysis, and deep dives into war fighting, strategy, and leadership. I'm Jessica Gadawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Alexander Matovsky. Alexander is assistant professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey and an associate at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Alexander has a recent book, Popular Dictatorships, that examines the phenomenon of electoral autocracies, which, as Alexander notes in the book, has become the most persistent form of authoritarian regime today and includes many countries that are likely to shape the nature of the international order in the 21st century. This book, Popular Dictatorships, examines why electoral autocracies are so persistent and why the leaders of those regimes seem to have maintained traction. We're going to discuss some of the themes from the book in light of Russia's regime and Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Alexander. Thank you very much, Jessica, and thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So yeah, I will just start with a disclaimer. So everything I'll say in, in the podcast and in the comments is my own opinion and not the official policy of the U.S. Navy, Department of Defense, and the U.S. government. So if we could start off more broadly, there is this common perception that authoritarian regimes tend to survive purely on the basis of coercion and oppression of their domestic populations. But you're suggesting in the book that this phenomenon of electoral autocracies, actually leaders of those regimes tend to enjoy significant broad-based support amongst their populations. So can you define for us what is an electoral autocracy and what is the appeal of strongmen leaders in those regimes? Absolutely. Yes, thank you for the question. So the electoral autocracies are essentially regimes that formally adopt democratic institutions. They have multi-partyism, parliaments, constitutions, and so on, but subvert them in practice through informal means, basically. So these are regimes where political competition is real, but highly unequal. They stifle competition with this broad menu of manipulation that constantly gets updated with new tools. From outright ballot stuffing, which is a quite unsophisticated way to do this, to more subtle tactics like limiting media access, gerrymandering, procedural manipulations, and many, many more new tricks that are actually multiplying and becoming more creative. So this type of regime is often described with sports metaphors. This is kind of a competitive game where the field is tilted in one side's favor, the goals of the other side are smaller, the referees are biased. The other kind of key takeaway about these regimes is they have been remarkably successful. So this is the one form of dictatorship that still competes with democracy in terms of numbers after the Cold War. They have consistently controlled one third of the countries in the world, including countries as geopolitically significant as Russia, Egypt, Venezuela, Pakistan, Malaysia, until recently, and Nigeria. So they're on every continent. They've been remarkably persistent. So on average, they extended the life of the average dictatorship to about 20 to 25 years. And they're much longer lasting than the previously dominant kind of the Cold War period dominant military juntas. And they're almost reaching to the longevity of some one party regime. The other takeaway for them is that they're actually the biggest threat to democracy today. So virtually all democracies that collapsed since the 1990s have become electoral democracies. And 
Electoral authoritarianism is behind the sustained decline of democracy throughout the world since 2006. So this kind of global backsliding, if you like. And remarkably, these regimes have managed to penetrate some bastions of democracy that were previously thought to be unpenetrable, basically. They, they have taken over in some NATO and new countries like Hungary, for instance. And they threaten long-established Western democracies. If there's one single threat to democracy in the world, both internal and external, it's this type of regime. So my book is motivated by a core paradox and puzzle posed by these regimes. So how can an autocracy that adopts more democratic features, like more freedoms, more ability to contest its power, outlast, close the dictatorships that rule with an iron fist? It's kind of a, a kind of a core contradiction and paradox of these regimes. So my book argues that actually these electoral autocracies can emerge quite simply because popular majorities may genuinely support this kind of rule in some circumstances. In particular, I show that these regimes have a very distinct tendency to rise in times of profound turmoil in the wake of deep economic, political security crisis, when established institutions and mainstream political forces have failed to address these crises. And against these backdrop, basically, you have strongman leaders who promise to resolve their country's problems with an iron fist, and they can become remarkably and genuinely popular, basically. So they're attractive for a simple reason. They promise to combine the best and avoid the worst of both democracy and authoritarianism. So the electorate strongmen appeal to societies traumatized by deep political economic security crisis because they offer some degree of popular accountability, but without the divisions, conflict, and uncertainty of liberal democracy. And also strong, uncompromising, effective government without the arbit completely arbitrary behavior and violence of an unchecked dictator. So this is kind of the, the best of both worlds type of selling point. And the key danger of electoral authoritarianism is that this genuine appeal allows it to hijack the institutions of democracy to sustain itself. It's kind of a parasitic form of government, if you like. So popular strongmen rise to power to rule with minimal use of coercion and other manipulations and largely through the ballot box. And in this sense, they're the ultimate nightmare of democratic forces. They ruled to what James Madison called the tyranny of the majority, basically. And they're very hard to resist with democratic means while they're still popular. Mm -hmm. I think this is really uh, fascinating and such an important area, like also as we're looking at the sort of domestic instability that is besetting some of our more established democracies as well. And I know there can be this kind of slippery slope towards electoral or and I think there's also something a little insidious about this because for people within the country, they're still experiencing getting to vote, which we often think is a kind of classic symbol of living in a democratic country, but it's not what we would consider free and fair elections. Yeah, absolutely. So they kind of hijack democracy. They, they are kind of a facade of democracy type of regime. So they definitely have this insidious quality. And if we could talk a bit more specifically about Russia itself, because Russia, you do define as an electoral autocracy. So can you talk about why Putin's regime seems to be this classic case of really having a popular base of support and gaining that kind of traction and persistence during the 2000s? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for that question. So Russia is kind of, for those precise reasons, the main case of the book, because it's grown into one of the most quintessential and malignant electoral autocracies in the world today. And as I argue in the book, this kind of tracing the long, long genesis of the, the regime, even before it was established, it's a direct consequence of the monumental crisis that the country suffered after the Soviet collapse. So l let me kind of cite a few 
facts off the top of my head to give you a sense of the scale. So with the disintegration of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union, Moscow conceded an area greater than the size of the European Union or India without a shot fired in anger. So you had this tremendous imperial collapse. On top of that, there was a tremendous economic collapse. So the, the Russia suffers an economic decline, socioeconomic collapse that was more than twice as large and lasting more than twice as long as the Great Depression in Germany in the 1930s, the crisis that produced Nazism, basically. And Russia itself, on top of all of that, looked like it was going to disintegrate. So it faced near civil war in the streets of Moscow in 93, when President Yeltsin shelled parliament with tanks to dislodge his radical opponents. And it could not resist secessionist forces in the tiny Republic of Chechnya, potentially kind of encouraging other secessionists throughout Russia. So this trauma of, of this crisis of, of post-communism, which was effectively, you might argue, the biggest peacetime decline in history, you know, bearing a kind of major conflict, is what gave rise to the Putin regime, what created these kind of conditions. As I show in my research, popular demand for strongman rule in Putin's mold existed actually many years before he appears on the scene, before anybody knew who Putin was. You have surveys as early as 96 show that about 70% of Russians at the time declared their country needed a strong armed rule to impose order, reversing the initial preference Russians had for more liberal governance at the end of communism. So they just hit essentially a tremendous crisis and they wanted to revert back to whatever works to just keep the country together. So Putin rose to power by demonstrating he can be the strong man that Russia craved. The, you know, the first act of Putinism was actually brutally suppressing Chechnya in a stage-managed invasion. And as a result of that, his popularity shot up from practically zero. He was a complete unknown when he was appointed successor to Boris Yeltsin. And it shot up to over 80% in just a few months as a result of that conflict. And other stunts like that, the Second Chechen War under his rule, signal that he is actually the strong man that can over time restore Russia against all its problems or enemies, secessionists, greedy oligarchs, foreigners, you name it. And for the crisis-weary Russian population, this hope lasted a very long time. So people who were kind of shell-shocked and traumatized by this decline of the 1990s, really, they, they stuck with him despite the corruption decay of Putinism. So his, Putin's ratings, if you just look at kind of the approval, stayed above 60% for almost 20 years. They only declined below that in recent years. So this is the root of Putin's rise in extraordinary popularity. For a population desperate for stability, just imposing a modicum of order, no matter how unjust, made Putin look like a savior for that generation that was absolutely traumatized. So crucially, it was a core pillar of his domestic support. The popularity gave him super majority support that granted domination over the Russian institutions and elites. He could rule using those democratic institutions, basically displacing everybody else. So as long as he was popular, nobody in the widely despised Russian elite could dare challenge him. So he could police the elite, if you like, kind of remove oligarchs that were not very friendly or loyal and others as well. And then the system of organized corruption that he presided over to maintain that inner circle was shielded from mass rebellion. As long as Putin was popular, people were not going to rise in rebellion against the corruption of the system. So that's kind of the basic background, I argue, in the book of Putinism. Mm -hmm. And it's this fascinating political game, I guess, although oftentimes a deadly serious 
political game where you might see opposition politicians in Russia who actually are speaking out, criticising Putin or criticising the government, less so, of course, since the 24th of February this year, we have to say. But there is this interesting tension between the coercive tools used by authoritarian leaders and then actually allowing some type of dissent or opposition, which almost makes them more popular because then in the eyes of the population, well, we do have some kind of choice here or some kind of electoral regime that's operating. Yeah, no, absolutely. Russians really wanted, I mean, there was a kind of a social contract in effect where people would elect their own dictator, basically. So, and like the breaking of that contract later turned a lot of the Russian population against Putinism. So basically, yes, we have a dictator because this country needs a strong arm to keep it together and, and, and stable, but then we want to elect that dictator. So that's kind of the essence of this electoral authoritarianism, social contract. Mm-hmm. And could you talk a bit more about that aspect of sort of strong leader being popular because they can ensure order and stability? And there's an intersection between that and the engagement of countries such as Russia in foreign crises or international military interventions And we've certainly seen that under Putin, as you said, starting off with Chechnya, but then we've seen Georgia, we've seen interventions in Syria, obviously in Ukraine in 2014, and now full-scale invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February this year. So can you talk a bit more about how that works for leaders in electoral autocracies, but speaking specifically about Putin in Russia, foreign interventions in order to maintain popularity at home? No, absolutely. Thank you for that question. So one of my key findings in the book is that crisis-based authoritarian legitimation is basically a double-edged sword. A strong man loses his or her appeal. It's always been a, a he, by the way, so far. If they fail in their mission of bringing stability, and paradoxically, if they succeed as well. Uh, because if you succeed in bringing stability, why do we need a strongman regime again? So they kind of expire if there is no crisis, basically. So that crisis, switching crisis on and off is essential for them. So they effectively have to sustain and manufacture the crises that justify their rule. And this is kind of perfectly reflected to a large degree in, in Russia. So Putin's popular appeal begins to decline around the 2010s for both reasons. So he stabilizes Russian politics and society and the economy to such an extent that wide swaths of the population began to be bothered by the unwholesome nature of, of the authoritarianism, the corruption, all the other side effects of authoritarianism. In, he faces the first mass revolt on the streets in 2011-2012 when the urban educated middle class rises in mass rebellion against the regime. And while at the time this revolt did not turn into a full-scale color revolution, the the ultimate nightmare of Putinism, like those that toppled the regime in, in Ukraine 2004 and 2014 and during the Arab Spring, but this protest wave, you might say, crippled Putinism in one crucial regard. Putin was losing the ability to renew his regime through elections. So, for instance, in 2013... His popularity was still around 60%, his popular approval, but a plurality of over 40% of Russians wanted Putin to retire after the end of his term in 2018. On top of that, Ukraine experienced a revolution toppling a pro-Russian autocrat who was in Putin's mold and was threatening to create a contagion effect on neighboring Russia. So if nothing had been done at that time to restore Putin's strongman appeal and the demand for it, basically, he faced a very real prospect that he kind of, he survived the initial shock of that protest, but he could have faced a much larger rebellion by the time of his re-election in 2018. 
And the Crimea annexation and the war in Donbass were kind of launched against this backdrop and were incredibly effective in resurrecting Putin's legitimacy as Russia's indispensable strongman. So his ratings shot back up to over 80%. Now over 60% of the Russians said uh, Putin should be reelected, allowing him a very easy victory in 2018. But this shot of adrenaline, if you like, distracting ordinary people with a seeming restoration of Russia's great power status and reminding them of the decline before Putin's rise began to wear off quickly after 2018. So by the end of 2021, just kind of coming to our current situation, the, all the indicators, if you like, like kind of as far as surveys and uh, public opinion research can show these, uh, and they had in the past, all the indicators of a color revolution threat were at record levels for Putin's entire tenure. So they were worse than 2013. So in 2021, just to give you a couple of data points, about 20% of Russians openly declared that they would join protests with political or economic demands. The rate of actual labor protests, which have a nasty tendency to spill over into political ones, were highest recorded during Putin's entire tenure. And this is all despite the pandemic and the much greater repression. So just kind of being on the streets and voicing these types of opinions can land you in jail much more than before. So that shows this was really serious. Uh, in the background of all this, you had popular revolts pushing neighboring dictatorships in Belarus and Kazakhstan on the brink of collapse. And Russian pollsters detected signs that these events might motivate the Russians to rise up and protest too. They were kind of sympathizing, if you like, with the demands of the protesters in these other places. The trust in Putin, not approval, trust, dips below 30% for the first time. So even though approval is high at 60%, trust is going down. This is suggesting that the approval was hollowing out. He was starting to lose out the confidence even of his core supporters. There was this huge gap between approval and trust and confidence in the leader. So that meant like approval can really dip quite quickly. And finally, that same indicator is in 13, uh, the share of Russians who declared they wanted Putin to retire after the end of his term in 2024 now uh, was about to surpass those wanting him to stay. And now if we take a kind of a snapshot of what's going on right now, after the invasion was launched in February and then just even at this very moment, it had a complete reversal of this effect. So the, the effect of the invasion was very much the same as after Crimea and the second invasion of Chechnya and all these wars that Putin initiated. So Putin's ratings go, you know, shot up at above 80% again. Willingness to participate in protests is dropping below single digits. You have a clear majority of over 60% of Russians saying they want to re-elect Putin in 2024, which is a crucial trend now because 2024 will be his most controversial re-election yet under constitutional provisions that effectively allow him for the first time to become Russia's leader for life and kind of be re-elected over and over again. And this is despite the fact that Russia is suffering tremendous casualties and humiliating defeats in Ukraine. So we should, you know, we don't yet have insider accounts of the, what led to the decision-making in Putin's inner circle, but this prior history of aggression to bolster domestic legitimacy, starting with Chechnya, second war in Chechnya, the fact that the strategy was enormously successful in resurrecting Putin's appeal after Crimea, the fact that he was facing the biggest decline in public trust at the end of 2021, should nudge us at least to seriously consider the domestic legitimation motive as a key driver of the aggression. It's actually more consistent than the alternative explanation, like the dominant international relations explanation that Russia intervened to prevent the loss of Ukraine, a geopolitical loss to the West. 
Well, I mean, if you compare early Putinism to now, uh, you see there was a dramatic change in that attitude. A more self-confident Putin did not promote separatism or create frozen conflicts in Ukraine after its orange revolution in 2004, early in his tenure, even though he faced the prospect of the same geopolitical losses in 2014 and later. So you see this progression of aggressiveness is much greater as Putinism declines at home, as it faces a kind of a major challenge. Actually, like as a policy, it's kind of complete failure if he was trying to prevent the loss of Ukraine, because what 2014 and especially 2022 interventions did were just pushed Ukraine forever outside of Russia's orbit. You know, that population can only be controlled under the most severe occupation now. It also isolated and ruined Russia economically and otherwise. So, I mean, yes, it's possible that this was a complete miscalculation and so on, but it's much more consistent. It's like simpler, more consistent explanation that this was motivated by kind of domestic motives. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me, that argument around the domestic calculus for Putin, because as you said, with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it doesn't seem that Russia is going to achieve anything in terms of, let's say, weakening NATO or proving some point to the West or, you know, even having some amazing military victory in Ukraine, which is obviously not going to happen. And yet, if we think of Putin's calculus as being the worst possible outcome for me is that I lose power due to dissatisfaction from domestic populations, then actually there is some logic there that by engaging in the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, despite all the brutality and all the costs, he's actually maintained his grip on power domestically. Amazing that basically we're still having uh, resistance to accept that it could be a domestic motive. I mean, again, when you look at the nature of the regime, this is a kleptocratic regime. It shouldn't be so hard to accept that the kleptocratic regime might not be driven by the national interest of its country rather than more by selfish interest. Yeah. Also with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Putin has has muddied the waters in terms of who is our real enemy here. So like for the Russian populations presenting this narrative that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. let's say, European countries or Western countries that are against us and that are a threat to us and that we need to fight against. And I can do that for you successfully, again, in that mold of the kind of strongman leader of an electoral autocracy. This is sort of an impossible question to answer. But given your understanding of those internal dynamics and domestic incentives, Incentives that exist for Putin. How do you see this going forward? Like, what moves do you see Putin taking if we look at it from that perspective? Yeah, no, that's a kind of the trillion dollar question, I guess. <laughs> so, if we pay heed to this re- regime preservation motive for Russian aggression, its implications are actually much worse. This is kind of the worst case scenario in many ways. And it's worse than the standard geopolitical explanations that, you know, he's trying to protect, like Russia's sphere of influence, great power status, and so on. So if it's driven by domestic self-preservation, to vindicate this decaying strongman appeal and repression of Putinism, the Kremlin needs to stage greater and greater conflicts. The more they decay, they need to kind of increase the stakes, if you like. Walter Russell Mead had a great kind of article after Crimea annexation talking to this effect. So he just needs to stage greater and greater conflict, increase the dose of adrenaline he injects into the Russian population. And this is the pattern we observe from the annexation of Crimea, which was a more subdued type of intervention, like a frozen conflict into this like complete conquest we are uh, witnessing right now. So that's a, like a very escalatory kind of pattern. Uh, secondly, Putin's Russia cannot be appeased with geopolitical concessions. 
So offering an end to NATO and EU enlargement, neutrality for Ukraine, removal of US nuclear weapons from Europe and other conciliatory moves will do nothing to remove Kremlin's reliance on conflict and external threats to justify authoritarianism and to de demobilize dissent in Russia. So we should like really rethink the carrots and sticks that are into consideration here. And particularly, it does not quite matter where the NATO borders are. You know, this was like the main uh, supposed irritant for Russians, according to the old playbook for assessing their behavior. So while the Putin regime relies on framing NATO as Russia's key bogeyman, basically an existential threat, it will maintain a confrontational posture to the West wherever the West starts, wherever the borders of the West are. So they'll chase conflict wherever it starts. It doesn't, this kind of restricting NATO enlargement is not a great way to persuade them. And finally, as long as Kremlin is driven by this strategy of confrontation, the West cannot woo Russia to drive a wedge in its growing alignment with China one of the kind of biggest uh, geopolitical considerations. So Russian leadership that is depending on confronting the West to preserve power at home cannot be a balance of power actor. It cannot play, you know, the West and China in some sort of a geopolitical game. Putinism driven by domestic weakness will sacrifice Russia's national interest. It will make Russia dependent on China and exposed to its growing power to preserve itself by sustaining this antagonism with the West. So to be able to sustain it, it needs Chinese help. So if you take these together, these points suggest that we need to reconsider the behavioral model we attribute to Russia and other autocracies like it, and also the policy responses. So Russia, from this perspective, is more akin to an oversized North Korea, an existentially threatened dictatorship that lashes out abroad to cling on to power at home, uh, than a rising resurgent near-peer competitor like the Soviet Union or China. So Soviet Union in the Cold War, they thought they were winning. Right? Even when they were weaker and going through difficult times, they thought they were winning. So that allowed them to make some tactical withdrawals to play the long game, if you like. They were a much more cautious player than what Russia is today. So Russia is now much weaker, but much more likely to be aggressive and much more desperate. And this continued decay of Putinism will make the Kremlin more and more desperate, potentially leading to more dangerous escalations than what we experienced during the Soviet decline of the 1980s, uh, despite, again, the fact that Russia has become much weaker here. Because mm -hmm. really that regime survival is prioritized above all else. Yeah. Thanks, Alexander. This has been a fascinating discussion for me and very valuable. And I recommend that listeners do check out your book, Popular Dictatorships. I found it very convincing. It's very thorough and comprehensive and also draws on a lot of survey data in order to make the point so that you can really see what's happening amongst domestic populations and supporting the claims that you make in that book. I also think, as I said at the beginning, it's particularly important because electoral autocracies do have so much traction and really are going to be very important countries if we want to understand the dynamics of the international order going forward. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a great pleasure to talk about this. It's not a very cheerful topic for sure, but I think we need to take this into account because you know, if the premise that the more crisis, more electoral authoritarianism, more fighting that they kind of create to sustain themselves, if we think about the, the direction of the world with more kind of structural reasons for crisis, global warming, like a lot of displacement, economic and otherwise, we are more likely to witness this than ever. So we should probably be ready for it. Thank you very much for the opportunity to voice these um, ideas. And I, I really enjoyed our change. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. Mm -hmm.